Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Lyman, and I'm very happy to have all of you with us out there. It's a big week uh, in politics. Tomorrow night, President Biden gives his State of the Union address and uh, it, in a way uh, sets the table for uh, what everyone expects to be his announcement that he he won't announce it, but lays out the successes he believes he's had in the last two years and sets the table for the things that he is likely to talk about as he launches the expected presidential re-election uh, campaign. We, we are all, I think, believe, believe that at some point soon, perhaps this week, Fannie Willis is going to let us know whether she plans to uh, issue any indictments, go to a grand jury in terms of her investigation of, of the efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And we're still waiting for uh, Fulton County Judge uh, Robert McBurney to uh, let us all know whether he believes that the public should see all or at least some of the report that that special grand jury released. So could be a big week in politics, and I've got a great panel to begin talking about the issues in the news right now. It's Mondays, my partner from the political, for, uh, the, for Political Rewind from the AJC, Patricia Murphy, political reporter, and the author of the Political Insider column, which you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, Patricia. Oh, and you also oversee the joke. We never want to forget that. How are you doing, Patricia? I'm doing great. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Glad that you are here. Chauncey Alcorn is back with us as well. He's a reporter for Capital B. Um, Chauncey, we're going to talk at some point today. You filed a story for Capital B on um, Andre Dickens' meeting with uh, the press recently, with media. And one of the things he, he said that you picked up on in your story was that he believes that... Um, the relationship between the Atlanta Police Department and black communities in Atlanta is improving um, despite the showdown around the Atlanta Police Training Center, despite fears about what happened in Memphis being potentially a problem here, you know, that it could happen here. So I'll be um, eager to hear what you uh, made of his comments on that. In the meantime, thanks for being here. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. Malid Easters is back with us. She's the founder and the director of the Georgia Win List, which um, for its entire existence has been dedicated to, has a mission of recruiting pro-choice Democratic women to run for office, particularly legislative offices. Hi, Melita. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure Absolutely. to be back. Edward Lindsay, our good friend, is back with us. Um, Ed, Edward was a member of the Georgia General Assembly, a Republican. He was in the leadership during his tenure down under the Gold Dome. He's now a partner at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. And Edward, you oversee, we should always remind people, 
the Georgia Government Affairs Practice at Denton. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. All right, so let's get right to it. Uh, Patricia, There, we know that for uh, some time now, both Governor Kemp and Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones have really been focusing on, uh, on law enforcement, on crime, as major issues that they want to address during this session of the General Assembly. And, and one aspect of that, they've been very critical of some district attorneys who they believe have shirked their responsibilities to uh, aggressively prosecute, go after criminals in their jurisdictions. And um, now we have two bills that have been introduced that are going to be efforts to really hold the district attorneys even more accountable than before uh, in one bill by their own constituents, in the other by a panel that would uh, come together to evaluate whether district attorneys are doing their jobs correctly or not, right? Have I got that right? Yep, that's exactly right. Um, so these bills are coming from Houston Gaines and Joseph Gullett. These are two Republican House members. Houston Gaines has been um, quite involved in uh, police and uh, criminal justice and um, kind of this entire bucket of legal issues. Uh, the first bill that they have introduced um, has to do with the conduct of DAs in office. District attorneys, of course, are elected by their own communities, but this bill would lower the threshold for a DA to be recalled between elections um, from 30% of the registered voters in that district attorney's territory to just 2%. 30% is a very high threshold, I think, for any um, for any kind of election or to get anything on a ballot. Um, that was obviously deliberately high because it's very, very difficult to get that number of signatures. It brings it way down to 2%. Um, what that means is that um, if a prosecutor is is not uh, what they're what they're the way they've described it, if there is harmful conduct from the DA, if the DA is not um, living up to its community's expectations, they can start the process of a recall election. That is really targeted at a few specific instances around the state where DAs have actually been um, arrested, in some cases sent to jail for their own conduct or conflicts of interest. So that's kind of one bucket. The second bucket of situations is addressed by the second bill. Um, this is primarily a bill from Houston Gaines. It would create an oversight commission of mm -hmm district attorneys um, in the way that you uh, see other kinds of oversight commissions. Um, now, Democrats say this the oversight for district attorneys is voters. If they don't like what a district attorney is doing in office, they can address that at the next election. Um, Houston Gaines in particular has really butted heads with the DA in Athens and says that she is not uh, enforcing the laws on the books, is uh, even when police bring in people who have been arrested, they are not being held accountable, they're not being brought to, um, they're not being prosecuted the way uh, he wants to see them done. And this commission would be appointed by um, the governor, the lieutenant governor and legislative leaders. So you can imagine that it would be um, under this 
iteration of the General Assembly, a, quite a conservative, um, a conservative panel. Mm-hmm. We've heard from DAs, particularly, I would say specifically on the abortion issue, many DAs said they have no intention of passing the law, of I'm sorry, of prosecuting the law that the legislature passed when they passed the six-week abortion ban and it's gone into um gone into effect. Uh, there have been other more narrow instances uh when DAs have said this is a low priority for me, but that's part of the discretion that DAs have just as a natural part of their jobs. But it's been a, a major source of frustration, uh, particularly in Democratic-led cities versus the governor and Republican General Assembly. So this is uh, this is tension that I expect to see continue, and that's what these bills are about. Melita, uh, Deborah Gonzalez, the DA out in Athens, is under particular fire. Uh, uh, governor Kemp has criticized her very, very yes. harshly um, over particularly one specific uh, case in which um, she, a, a judge in her jurisdiction, dismissed a sexual assault indictment because her office didn't meet the speedy trial demand. Gonzalez's office said it was a scheduling error. But this is exactly the sort of thing that uh, has triggered this effort in the legislature uh, that and and certainly what Patricia pointed out, some DA saying we're not going to prosecute people if they violate the six-week abortion law. Um, th- there really is an increasing, I don't know if war on per- what they would call permissive DAs is the right word, but it's close. Maybe. Well, it is close. And, and what you have to look at is, number one, Houston Gaines defeated Deborah Gonzalez in a legislative race years ago. So the bad blood between them is is a long building affair. The particular case that you're talking about is one of of a it's a case where the defendant was being prosecuted in another judicial circuit. But you have to understand that there is a lot of paperwork that COVID slowed down during COVID um, for speedy trial requests and that sort of things. Part of this issue, I believe, is the fact that we have an increasing number of women district attorneys. There are 49 judicial circuits in Georgia. That was the last place where white men were absolutely predominant. And now you have an increasing number of women district attorneys and an increasing number of those women district attorneys are women of color. Gonzalez in um, Athens, Clark County is Hispanic. So um, it, it's a way for the men to regain control of these women DAs. And the, the checks and balances are already in place as women legislators like Senator Elena Parent have pointed out. So um, that's another underlying vein of the complex issue. Edward, do you see this as a gender issue? Well, it's yet to be seen on how it will be applied uh, before you could really make that kind of determination. The fact of the matter is, however, that particularly when it comes to uh, office holders uh, who hold office in the legal uh, realm, this is not uh, unique. Uh, we already uh, also have in place the, the JQC, Judicial Qualifications Commission, 
which oversees judges and uh, and can reprimand or or remove a judge if they believe that they are acting outside of their duties or have committed some kind of wrongdoing. And you enumerated some of the wrongdoings that we've had with some DAs that it's been rather difficult to remove them underneath the present system. So yes, we have the voters as one check, but we already in the legal profession have other checks as well when it comes to things like the JQC for judges. So we'll just have to see uh, what this bill looks like in its final version in terms of what are the possible grounds for removing a, a prosecutor, because the devil is going to be in the details when it comes to that. Uh, in regards to the lowering the threshold from 30% down to 2%, um, quite frankly, I've always thought 30% was pretty high for, for a recall on any <laughs> on any elected officials. I've always thought that that, that number should be lower. So uh, perhaps they should look at uh, the recall requirements in Georgia across the board. Two percent, by contrast, sounds awfully low. So my guess is going to compromise. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to get Chauncey in in a minute. But I'm curious about something, Edward. Why is 30 percent too high? I mean, if an elected official has to have 50 percent plus one to win an, an office, why wouldn't you want to set the threshold for a recall at least, you know, a little bit higher than you're talking about two percent. No, 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 no. Well, I, I, I think I think what I was trying to—I didn't mean to interrupt. I apologize. I, I think two percent is too low. I think two percent is very too low. But if you look around the country, thirty percent is one of the higher percentages. Okay. Uh, that's all I'm saying is okay, that fair. somewhere around twenty. I, I I would personally think somewhere around twenty twenty five percent. I think that's a pretty good groundswell, and you ought to take a look at whether or not that person's doing their job. Well, thank uh, but, you. I just wanted to clarify. No, no, no. I'm not talking about 2%. I'm just saying that there's going to be a compromise. You know, you started, you got 30 on one end, two on the other. There's going to be, if, if indeed it progresses at all. And quite, but I'm not, also my point is that I think it ought to be across the board and not just dealing with DAs. I'd be surprised if it doesn't uh, advance, Chauncey. This is a session that Republicans are going to be tough on crime throughout. Yeah, I think the biggest thing uh, that this is reminding me of is California, where we see recall elections all the time. I believe the threshold there for a recall is 12 percent. So 2 percent um, is pretty, pretty low. And I think that that's uh, concerning for or should be concerning for uh, these uh, district attorneys for a number of reasons. Number one. Um, it doesn't take much to get 2% of, of voters on any particular thing. Um, and, uh, you know, they just don't necessarily want the headache, even if they are in these blue dots that um, sit, you know, in a in a in a red ocean. Um, and as, as it relates to Georgia's electorate, um, nobody wants to have to contend with the idea of, you know, recall or things of that nature when you're trying to do your job. So it's also, you know, we've seen. Um, this doesn't uh, to me doesn't seem particularly targeted at Fannie uh, Willis, but we've seen frustration from the governor um, and others on the in the GOP over you know some of the uh, subpoenas and things of that nature that um, Fannie Willis has done as it relates to the uh, uh, investigations into uh, Donald Trump's um, um, wrongdoing and all the other GOP officials in Georgia helping him. So, and, uh, you know, that was obviously a big part of the campaign cycle. So it's it's so you know this might be a way to kind of like. Put people on notice that you know we can hold you accountable at least uh, put pressure on you um in addition to you know um going after people that you know that are their political enemies for other reasons as well patricia 
Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Obviously, the way that the bill is pitched and framed is this would be um, a recall effort um, potentially for a district attorney who is not seen as sufficiently prosecuting dangerous criminals or uh, street crimes or serious, serious um, criminal violations. And they're you know, in some theory, walking free when they shouldn't be because of the district attorney's office. There's no way to know, though, if the recall um, effort could be started by a political organization as a way mm -hmm. to retaliate against somebody who is prosecuting uh, somebody, for example, like Donald Trump. Um, Two percent is very, very low when you're thinking about um, the fact that Fulton County is certainly a, a Democratic county. Um, however, could you get 2% of signatures on a petition um, if you had a political effort behind it in order to really go after somebody who is going after um, uh, or prosecuting a case that is not entirely popular with 99% with of the county? You see how it could um, start to occupy the attention and the resources and just the mind share of DAs if they need to worry about a threshold of 2%. Um, particularly if it's not in a situation if you're talking about the way they're prosecuting violent crime. Patricia, you're spending a good amount of time talking to legislators down at the Capitol. Uh, to what extent are you hearing buzz about, from Democrats particularly, that uh, to some extent, and, and Chauncey and you both already referred to it in, in broad uh, strokes, could, could this be something that would be directed at Fonnie Willis as she pursues her investigation of the attempts to overturn the election. And and also, we should add to that, she has been criticized uh, a lot for uh, focusing on things like that while she had a large caseload uh, of, of uh, cases that, largely because of the pandemic, she has not been able to bring forward. So to what extent do people fear this might be a weapon against Fonnie Willis? Well, so, you know, it could be a weapon against anybody um you just can see the either intended or unintended consequences here when when we're talking about this bill we hear a lot about just uh deborah gonzalez to be honest with you it, it does not come to us pitched as something having to do with Fonnie Willis, um, or it's certainly not about uh, the Trump investigation because um, the governor has not been in a big, uh, has not been in a big hurry to defend Donald Trump, to try and push things that would punish Fonnie Willis for going after Donald Trump. Um, and Fonnie Willis, frankly, has very, very good relationships with state lawmakers, including Republicans, and in some cases, especially Republicans, because she's been working with them on anti-crime legislation that they really want to pass. She's been a, a real partner to them, and it's made it much easier for them to pass those bills, and she'll continue to work with them on that this session. So she is she is not sort of seen as the kind of the, quote, problem prosecutor in this conversation. However, there's nothing preventing an outside political group from using a law like this to go after a prosecutor who gotcha. they're unhappy with or want to have political retaliation against. All right. Uh, well, we'll watch to see how these two bills uh, uh, progress now that they've uh, been introduced. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, let's move on. Uh, Melita? You are uh, the Democrat uh, on the show today, so I want to start with you on this. As you well know, over the weekend, the Democratic National Committee had uh, their midwinter uh, uh, off-year meetings, and uh, among other things that they did, they formalized what we knew was coming, 
a reshuffling of the presidential primary schedule for 2024. And what they arrived at was that, uh, and it's it's a dramatic change, obviously. The first primary, which will take place on uh, February 3rd, 2024, will not be New Hampshire. It won't be the Iowa caucus. It will be a South Carolina primary. Three days later, on February 6th, they'll give New Hampshire an early date. So they'll vote on the 6th, and so will Nevada. And then Georgia is right up there a week later. The Democratic primary in Georgia in 2024 would be held on February 13th. All of this, Melita, driven by President Biden in his effort essentially to reward the states that helped elect him president. Melita? Well, it's something that Georgia Democrats want very badly, but the Republicans are saying that Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has the authority to set the state's election calendar. And so far, both he and Governor Kemp have not wanted to change the current calendar. And so the job now that Democrats have persuaded President Biden to um, make this new lineup is to somehow convince Republicans that it's in their best interest to make Georgia one of these early primary states. There is a lot to be said for the kind of attention this would bring to the state. There's a lot to be said about the money it would bring to the state, Um, all those TV ads to the media. But I think also what Democrats need to do is go after Brian Kemp's ego. You know, there have been a lot of articles that have talked about Brian Kemp's growing national reputation. So the minute Brian Kemp believes having an early primary in Georgia enhances his status either as a VP candidate or as a kingmaker or as a potential future U.S. senator, then we'll see the Republicans falling into line, but not until that happens. Um, Chauncey, of course, one of the things that President Biden is trying to accomplish here is to say we need a more diverse mix of voters in the early primary season. Iowa and New Hampshire are about as white as two states can get. If you put South Carolina in the mix, Uh, And then Georgia. And if you add Nevada with its Hispanic population, you are, for the first time, really allowing minority voices to have a big role in picking the Democratic candidate for president. Yeah, absolutely. That's this has been a big concern. Uh, There's a lot of uh, rumblings in the uh, uh, Democratic um, establishment about concerns over the losing um, of black voters and disengagement. Um, The numbers for the midterms were were down when compared to previous cycles. Um, so this is one of the ways that they may be looking to kind of shore that up a bit. Um, obviously, South Carolina being um, kind of the kicking off state as it relates to uh, um, the black electorate. So it's it's interesting, certainly, that, uh, you know, they're looking to move the commenter up for Georgia. Uh, my sources say there are more roadblocks than pathways for doing this. Jordan Fuchs, the deputy secretary of state, um, has given a threshold that uh, Dems uh, have no control of and making the reorder um, equitable for both parties. Um, under RNC rules, the reorder might cause Georgia to lose delegates. Um, 
uh, is what some of the Republicans are saying. And the Secretary of State is obviously not going to do this without Governor Kemp's uh, uh, sign off or support. So uh, more money, bringing more money into the state, which is what the Dems have talked about, isn't really the only factor here. So it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. Yeah, Edward, I think uh, that Chauncey makes an excellent point. While it is true that Governor Kemp has already expressed himself on this, he said, I have no intention of helping Democrats move their primary forward. He also has something of a bind because the Republican National Committee has no intention of changing the order of their primary schedule. They will start in Iowa. They will go to New Hampshire. And as Chauncey points out, uh, states that try to jump the order could be punished in some way, either with a loss of delegates for the candidate who wins a primary that steps out of uh, the uh, preordained order by the RNC. So it isn't as if it's entirely, I don't think, in Governor Kemp's or Brad Raffensperger's hands, independent of the RNC. No, no, it's not. Uh, so, it's, so, so you have that issue, and you have a, you know, sort of expanded back to nationwide. You also have New Hampshire, which has a state law that requires it to be the first state to hold a primary. And so New Hampshire has made it very clear that regardless of what the DNC does, uh, they will be holding their primary first. So uh, we'll have to see how that shakes out on the Democratic side. So there's a lot of the uh, moving parts behind the scenes that both parties have got to work out uh, before they settle on what uh, order the primaries will be. And so I, I suspect that we're several months away from seeing what actually happens. And I might also add a lot of Georgia uh, Democrats were not happy that South Carolina got to go before Georgia because they say that Georgia is a battleground state while South Carolina um, uh, you know, quite, is still very uh, solidly in the Republican column. Shouldn't a state like Georgia, which is a battleground state, come before South Carolina? So you have some of that going on as well. So it's going to be interesting for those of us who are political nerds to watch over the next few months. <laughs> Patricia? Yes, well, I will just add that Jamie Harrison, who is the um, executive director of the DNC, is lives in South Carolina, is from Orangeburg, South Carolina. Also from Orangeburg is Jim Clyburn, um, mm -hmm. one of the most influential members of the U.S. House and really seen as the man who delivered the White House to Joe Biden because he did come out before the South Carolina primary in favor of Joe Biden. And really, it felt like that swung the momentum to Biden. And then South Carolina swung kind of Biden's momentum straight on through the rest of the primary. So I think South Carolina has the heavy inside edge against Georgia on this. Um, but, uh, you know, as one Republican said to me, this would require us doing a big favor for Democrats. And why would we do that? <laughs> you know, so I think that pretty much is the beginning and the end of the conversation. Um, but along with the, the argument for bringing money and, and sort of like uh, political tourism to Georgia, it really does influence the kinds of laws that are proposed on the campaign trail. The only reason we have ethanol in our gas tanks is because of mm -hmm. the Iowa caucuses. 
it's the only reason because those presidential um, hopefuls were trying to get in good with the Iowa caucus goers. And that's just how the bills are sort of created at the very, very beginning of the process. So um, I think Georgia would benefit immensely from moving up in the process. But as Chauncey said, it seems like there are more roadblocks than pathways to this to this idea right now. All right. Uh, it's a fascinating development, and we'll see how it unfolds in the uh, weeks ahead. I got to get to our first break of the show. When we come back, we have a lot more that I'd like to talk about with this panel on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind, Edward Lindsay. Melita Easters, Chauncey Elkhorn, and Patricia Murphy join us for our show uh, today. Um, let's talk just for a couple minutes. Um, Chauncey, I'd like to get your take on the, uh, uh, the, the news conference that Andre Dickens, Mayor Dickens, had the other day. Um, again, as I said at the top of the show, he talked about a lot of things, including the Atlanta Police Training Center, and we're going to talk a bit about that today. Um, but he, he said that he thinks that relations between the police department in Atlanta and black communities has improved pretty significantly since he took office. And what signs did he uh, suggest indicate that that's happening? Great question. Well, he pointed to a lot of the um, programs that the uh, um, police department has, imp has implemented since uh, he took office more than a year ago. Um, they include uh, the Connect Atlanta uh, Neighborhoods Watch Surveillance Program, the Repeat Offender Tracking Unit, um, the uh, Nightlife Division, which uh, uh, with, uh, allows Atlanta police to train business owners and their staff how to address uh, matters of public safety. Um, the Midnight Basketball um, League to engage youth, um, the Atlanta Police Athletic League, which is designed to reduce crime by engaging and connecting young people. Um, so there's been a number of initiatives that they've started in addition to hiring more officers and trying to tamp down on crime. The, um, the Most of the feedback that I've gotten from folks on um, Mayor Dickens and 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 this issue is, are, is, number one, he's only been in office a year. And uh, uh, most people say, you know, he needs more time to get his programs in place and to address issues. Um, and we are coming up on the three-year three, three year anniversary of the uh, police killing of Rayshard Brooks. Um, and obviously the protests over the uh, um, shooting of... Uh, uh, Mr. Turan and with the uh, police training center and uh, the protests over uh, Tyree Nichols shooting in, in um, Memphis has kind of uh, raised the specter of police brutality as an issue. Once again, <clears throat> a lot of black folks, um, it, you know, first and foremost, there have been we've seen this huge concern since 2020, since the George Floyd protests over crime. And uh, that's an issue, um, um, ironically, where 
um, uh, Democratic and Republican uh, voters seem to agree that that's a concern of an issue, particularly black folks in black communities that are being disproportionately affected by crime. So that's been um, one of the other outliers. Um, the irony of it is police shootings uh, last year, according to GBI data, went up and, and we've seen crime stats go up. So it's it's kind of an interesting mixed bag that, that first and foremost, he's only been in an office a year, Mayor Dickens, and I think people are, are wanting to give him more time. Um, but there, you know, the numbers have not trended in the direction that you'd want to see go, you know, as a as a city leader. All right. I, I appreciate your uh, uh, pointing all that out. I, I wondered exactly where the mayor was coming from in your article. Help me understand that a, a bit more. Um, if you don't mind, I want to move on to another subject that relates to minority communities. Um, Patricia, it's interesting that Political Rewind did a show just last week on the rise in anti-Semitism here in Georgia, across the country, it, essentially around the world. Um, and uh, one of the people who's on that show is Representative Esther Panich from Sandy Springs, who is one of the sponsors of a bill to define anti-Semitism. Um, the reason that's important from her point of view is that once you define it, you can more easily then use it uh, as part of a hate crimes uh, 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 indictment, um, as long as there's a real definition of it. We should say it's a bipartisan bill, Chuck F. Stration, now the majority leader who sponsored the initial hate crimes legislation that finally passed a couple of sessions ago is on this bill. And uh, now we find that over the weekend, Patricia, there were flyers that were dropped at Jewish households, including Esther Panich's uh, across the northern metro suburbs, uh, Dunwoody, Sandy Springs, pretty hateful messaging. Um, and, and it's, you know, we know anti-Semitism exists, but every time something like this happens, I can't help as a Jewish American, but be kind of taken aback saying, oh my God, really? Yeah, well, it, this is a situation that is increasing and widespread. Um, in addition to the flyers that uh, people in the Atlanta suburbs got over the weekend, um, we have heard from people in Columbus, Albany, um, North Georgia, Dalton, who have gotten nearly identical flyers, in some cases on their windshields, in some cases in their front yards. Um, another person who received one was Greg Bluestein, um from the Atlanta paper. So it, particularly for Greg and for Representative mm -hmm. Panich to both receive them, it feels in this case, especially extremely targeted, um, which makes it very scary. Um, it feels individualized. Um, and these were neighborhoods where there is a um, large Jewish population because of their proximity to synagogues. And so it is, um, I, you know, Panch's bill down at the legislature, I think had a, a a decent shot of you know being passed because um it because of who's on it particularly chuck f stration um but uh, there's so many different pieces moving down there sometimes it's just a matter of getting attention on an issue or getting momentum on an issue um and it it wasn't clear if that was really going to have um quick momentum or not i do think an event like this 
really focuses lawmakers' attention on how necessary it is um, to really uh, state unequivocally how serious this situation is for Jewish Americans because um, uh, they're in a situation now where when they go to synagogue, it's with an armed guard at the door. Um, it is uh, just it is dangerous right now to worship in synagogues uh, because there have been shootings in synagogues, targeted killings. Um, it's just a very scary time. And so the bill would um, add anti-Semitism to the hate crime statute as well to increase penalties for crimes like that. Um, but it is just a moment where you're, to your point, you're saying, God, how is this still going on? But not only is it still going on, it really feels like it's on the increase. Melita, uh, I think Patricia makes a point that many people may not be aware of, but synagogues, in, certainly in Metro Atlanta, and I've been in cities like Macon and Savannah, I haven't seen them in, in action. Um, they all have uh, off-duty police. Uh, yes. And in some cases, probably active-duty uh, police, police cars uh, in front of their uh, buildings every Saturday. And it can be very disconcerting to walk well, up to your synagogue and, you know, have have police officers standing there in some cases with pretty heavy duty weapons. Well, and sometimes you even pass your purse through a detector. Um, Esther is the only Jewish member of the General Assembly right now, and she had organized a Shabbat service specifically for legislators just before the session began. And the other thing about this, this bill is that there is a Judiciary Committee hearing they, they had a hearing last week, and it's on the agenda for action tomorrow, Tuesday, February 7th. So the bill is on a fast track. And um, the other thing that Esther recently did was she introduced a historic first female Orthodox rabbi as the chaplain of the day just last week. So um, I, I think there is increasing awareness of anti-Semitism within the General Assembly because of Esther's efforts to share her faith with her fellow lawmakers. Edward, you want to weigh in? Yeah, well, I, I, I applaud uh, Representative Panish for bringing this bill. Um, I, I worked with the ADL uh, to pass the hate crimes bill two years ago, um, two and a half years ago. And I thought that was a great step forward and anything that can further uh, tighten the definitions and make it easier to prosecute these people who are preying upon our community uh, all the better. And I'm very happy to hear that it's a, a bipartisan bill, and hopefully we'll see it get passed and and, and we can keep moving forward. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, in our society, um, hate still has a, a prominent place in a lot of in, in a lot of people's hearts. And uh, and it's going to be up to us to to fight it, whether it be uh, on the issue of religion or religion issue of race or or any other uh, criteria or sexual preference. Uh, yeah. so, um, we, we, we need we, we need this uh, legislation to, to send the right message. Chauncey, it, it is not uh, an unknown uh, uh, factor that over the years, relationships between the Black and Jewish communities have at times been tense. Uh, it has not always been an easy uh, coming together, uh, interestingly, uh, among two groups of people who have been uh, uh, the targets of prejudice for a long time. And, and so I think it's interesting to think about 
whether they say the Black Legislative Black Caucus will decide to get behind this bill and show that there really is a unanimity of support uh, uh, for this measure, uh, again, between two groups that have struggled to figure out how to be closer to one another. First of all, that you, you would agree with that characterization, I suspect. Um, to a degree, I think sometimes, so we have, it's kind of a mixed bag, like most things in the news and politics. Um, certainly, um, we've seen in, in, in New York, where uh, I went to grad school, there was a lot um, in the last few years, uh, an uptick of uh, targeted attacks where you have uh, folks in Black communities uh, attacking um, people who are Jewish uh, or they're presented Jewish. Um, but um, I would also point out that a lot of the progressive advocacy, particularly um, on the issue of, uh, you know, what it relates to Black Lives Matter and things of that nature, you've seen this multiracial coalition and a lot of the folks who, um, you know, have spoken out are both Black and Jewish. So um, I think that there there certainly has a long legacy in the civil rights movement um, going back to, you know, even the, the formation of the NAACP by uh, um, a group of Jewish leaders and, and working with folks like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and others to help found that organization. Um, Jewish individuals working instrumentally during the civil rights movement. Um, some of them lost their lives during the freedom rides in the South. So there certainly is a long history. Um, as, as much as people want to point to the incidents where there's conflict between blacks, um, black folks in the Jewish community, there's certainly a lot of uh, synergy around them working together to advance civil rights as well. Um, I think that's really important. Uh, and in fact, we have a, a, an, an example of that here in Atlanta going back quite a long way, a couple of ways. Number one, when the temple was bombed in the late 1950s, uh, in fact, black leaders came together with the uh, uh, leadership at the temple and stood together to oppose uh, the, um, the hatred, the bigotry that led to this attack. Um, and then uh, more recently than that, uh, the American Jewish Committee in Georgia uh, formed a black Jewish coalition that John Lewis was deeply involved with. So I, I do think it's important if we're going to talk about uh, this, that we point out just what you've said, that there have been progressive efforts to really bring those groups together. And that's why I'm hopeful it'll be interesting to see that we have black uh, members of the legislature get on board with this initiative. Fair enough, Patricia? Oh, absolutely. I would fully expect the Black Caucus to get on board with this. Um, there is, There has been, uh, it predated the temple bombing, but certainly since the temple bombing, of course, as well. Ebenezer has had a very close relationship with the temple. Um, they do a, um, a uh, kind of an exchange of leaders during high holy days and Raphael Warnock goes and speaks to the temple rabbi berg from the temple comes down to ebenezer and there is a very strong bond and partnership there between those two congregations and um many of those members of that congregation are down at the legislature as members of the general assembly in the black caucus so i would fully expect the black caucus to support something like this Okay, we're going to watch how that bill moves forward. Uh, let's do this. Let's go to our final break of the show. we got more when we come back on Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, as usual, uh, the forces of gambling are out at the Capitol 
pushing hard for each of their ideas about how we should have gambling in the state, paramutual wagering, horse race betting, uh, casinos. But but once again, this this session, sports betting seems to be uh, on a, in a faster lane than the others. And um, and the supporters of sports betting got a big boost from former state Supreme Court Justice Harold Melton, who was asked by the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce uh, to issue an to give his opinion because he's no longer a judge, a judge he, his personal opinion as to whether sports betting would require a constitutional amendment. He said, "Nope, it's just all you have to do is add it to the lottery." I believe he's now a paid lobbyist uh, working on this issue, right? Well, he is not technically a lobbyist on this issue, but he his opinion is being used in a lobbying campaign on this issue. And he uh, was certainly paid by the Metro Chamber for the memo. And so um, I had noticed down at the Capitol every year we hear about sports betting every year it gets kind of bogged down by additions to casinos or additions with paramutual horse racing um and i think this is the ninth year running that this conversation has been going on at the least and um it just felt a little bit different at the beginning of this session once that melton memo hit because lawmakers have immense respect for um, Harold Melton, they still call him Justice Melton. Um, the way it was worded is an opinion from Justice Melton. So it actually feels like the state Supreme Court weighing in on something, although he is not a member of the state Supreme Court anymore. Um, but this is a new chapter in his kind of professional world is he works for Troutman and Pepper, a very large law firm here in Atlanta. They have paying clients and the Metro Chamber is one of them. The Metro Chamber uh, very much wants sports betting and only sports betting. And it's their contention that only sports betting would not require a constitutional amendment that brings the threshold down to a simple majority vote in the General Assembly instead of a two-thirds vote, which is what you need to amend the Georgia Constitution, which is what has been typically assumed to be required for um, to to sort of expand betting in the state past the lottery. So it's the the memo got lawmakers attention very quickly. And I wrote a column about it uh, to just add some transparency to where the opinion came from, why it happened, how it happened in the chamber was I spoke with the chamber and they were like, we absolutely went asked Melton specifically had a conversation with him to see where he comes down on this issue because they knew his opinion would carry a lot of weight down at the General Assembly. Yeah, Chauncey, in Patricia's column, uh, she talked to different lawmakers down there at the Capitol. And one of the lines that I thought was really interesting was that one legislator, I don't think you identified her or him, maybe you did, uh, said, well, I hear Melton's for sports betting. Uh, so uh, Harold Melton really has uh, a big stick in a fight like this, Chauncey. Yeah, I know that there's certainly been um, folks on the Democratic side in particular. Um, Stacey Abrams talked about this during the campaign, um, even though she lost. Um, uh, James Beverly, who I sp uh, spoke to about this back in December, has uh, voiced his support. They want to use some of the revenue from this to help fund some of these employment training programs for uh, for people, uh, underprivileged people who are trying to upskill themselves for the jobs of the future and the present. So uh, there certainly is um, some support on, on the Democratic side for this. Um, I, I, the typical, you know, objections that you would see to this 
from the right tend to come historically would come from the religious community. That um, constituency has kind of been muted in this discussion as best as I can tell as of late, not as much uh, power as they used to have on this issue. So, um, you know, it's just going to come down to, you know, how it's going to benefit um, um, both parties if, you know, if it's perceived that it's going to be a win for them. Edward? You know, just a, a couple of sort of procedural uh, aspects for our listeners. Um, the reason why sports betting can possibly move forward this session while gaming, well, uh, casinos would probably wait till next year is the fact that casinos will definitely take a constitutional amendment that can only be, that not only does it have to pass with two thirds of the General Assembly, but also has to uh, go on to the ballots and that can only go on the ballots in an even number of years. So there's a reason why while sports betting can move forward this year while uh, others can. And it is going to be interesting to see whether or not uh, Justice Melton can move the dial, because particularly in the Senate uh, Regulated Industries Committee, where this bill would likely go, uh, although there's rumble that it may go somewhere else, there's been a strong opinion that uh, that it should take a constitutional amendment. So we'll see where it goes there. It'll be interesting to see where that bill ends up, rather than if it goes somewhere other than regulated industries, it may a signal that, that it does have legs while in the past it has not. One word of caution to what Chauncey was talking about that my Democratic friends uh, are concerned about in terms of where the money goes. Sports betting, while it, it, it's, it's probably something that needs to come in here in Georgia because it's long overdue, it really doesn't bring that much additional revenue into the state. Uh, the, the real uh, big kahuna in that area is... Um, it's casinos. Uh, that's 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 what would bring in additional billion dollars or, or into state coffers. It could make some of the programs that Chauncey talked about to be viable. But it, you know, this would be a, an important first step to then see whether or not uh, casino gambling could be passed in the next session. Well, Melita, of course, if they pass sports betting without uh, uh, taking it to a constitutional amendment, you, this is only Harold Milton's opinion it's almost certainly going to be challenged in court. Yes, it probably would be. Um, I, I think the thing that would be most curious to know, which we will probably never know, is the size of Harold Melton's fee for um, doing this work for the Chamber of <laughs> Commerce. It's got to be in the high six figures, um, more than a big sports car. Um, but I do think it seems like... Um, this is on a greased skid this year. Um, Patricia, that is, I, look, we all have, I think it's safe to say that we've all watched Harold Melton's career and have a lot of respect for him as a jurist. He's He's been a really remarkable uh, judge and justice. Um, it's a little un unusual that he is not registered as a lobbyist, given how deeply he's involved in this right now. Well, Ed would have to tell me, I, at the federal level, you need to spend at least 70% of your time actively lobbying members in order to be oh. defined as a lobbyist. So Ed would have a better idea of what the legal definition is of a lobbyist, although Justice Melton is going up to the Capitol to do meetings with members and staff to sort of further explain his opinion um but he has he told me he's not a registered lobbyist so Ed, yeah, let's, we, we're almost, we're down to the last two minutes edward but let's see if we can get you in hot water with melton <laughs> no I'll, I'll, no no you're not going to do that because I, I like i like 
Justice Melton. No, not not going to do it. Uh, he probably does not, given given some of the thresholds that we have here in Georgia. Technically, if if this is the only thing that he comes down and he's issuing a letter as a lawyer, uh, and and is coming down as an expert as a lawyer. Uh, but it does go, go back to uh, some questions as to how we write our our laws on who is and is not a lobbyist. And you, you see the similar uh, questions arise oftentimes on the federal scene uh, when someone is a consultant rather than um, th than a lobbyist. But we are out of time for today's political rewind. Edward Lindsay gets the last word. Edward, thank you so much for being with us today. Melita Easters, it was wonderful having you back Thank with you. us. Well, Chauncey Alcorn, uh, Capital B, I should have reminded people at the top of the show, one of the things about your news organization is you are an online or news service that focuses on issues in the black community. And, and I think that's a, a tremendous service to all of us out here who concern the news. Thanks for being with us, Patricia Murphy. I always like Mondays with you. We're completely out of time. Brand new show tomorrow. Be back then. Until then, I'm Bill Baggett. Stay safe and please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.